Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Hey Kelly, how are you? Great, nice to see you guys. It's great to see you. Um, so I want to just get started. Could you give us a super high level overview of who you are and kind of how you got here and what you're about? Boy, how we got here is that uh, I'm obsessed. Uh, it's an act, total accident. Um, no, honestly, um, you know, I'm a f- classically trained physio. You know, I went to a heavy duty manual therapy school. And I was also a strength and conditioning coach and have been obsessed with strength and conditioning and high performance my whole life. I mean, I paddle on the U.S. canoe and kayak team. I paddle on the national whitewater team. I've always been interested in how do we go faster? How do we eat? You know, I read the zone book back in like, I don't know, was that 96, 97? I read the zone and I was like, boom, carbohydrates, the devil. Like I figured I was on to these things early on, like me, like eating diet, drinking diet Coke, eating rice cakes. Like the other kids in my climbing gym wasn't really the, wasn't the way. (laughs) So, so, um, you know, what's interesting is I owned a gym in the, in the Presidio in San Francisco. I started that in 2005 with my wife. And suddenly that was really, I would say, the beginning of this modern sort of strength conditioning 2.0 renaissance where the internet and CrossFit and kettlebells and Olympic lifting finally made their way into the mainstream where people, you know, before that, if you were, a tra- you were either a track athlete or you came through a football program, that was your exposure to lifting weights in a real way. I don't mean like going to the gym and you know, doing 17 gotcha. different kinds of bicep curls, but actual strength and conditioning. And then what was really interesting is this gap between my classical physio training and how we were actually training as athletes and what classic strength and conditioning looked like. And there was this, there were these kind of big holes there and lo and behold, I, we stumbled into them and just began by trying to help people solve their own problems. We started by making a video a day for a year back in, it was over 10 years ago. And lo and behold, you know, people, what we were doing wasn't working or wasn't working well enough. And whether there are conversations about restoring position or who owns pain, you know, what we basically were like exercise to the limits of our technical abilities with all these advanced tools. And if you break, that's not my problem. We'll go get some help. And then the old model is literally exercise till you break, train till you break. And then next time we'll get a little further before you get injured again or have an overuse injury. And I, you know, I thought to myself, I was like, maybe self, there may be a better way here. Maybe a better way. That's great. So a, another question, and this is this is a, this is a hard question. This is a million dollar question. What do you think has gone wrong with American health? You know, we've got like longevity. You know, it's not like we've peaked and we're coming back down. Is it people just don't move enough? They're it's you know off the carbs, off the couch. Is is there more to that story? What do you think? I think it's complex. I think um, you know what we've seen is. I think the way to answer this question, first and foremost, is to take a big 30,000 foot view and say, choose something you care about. So you're like, obesity, I care about obesity. Okay, like, how are we doing? Well, we get an F. (laughs) Okay, that's not working. You know, when you and I went to high school, the chances of us being diabetic was one in 4,000. And now it's one in four. And if you're a black woman or a Latino male, it's two out of three. I mean, those are your chances of being diabetic. It doesn't matter how much money your parents make or color of your skin. It's one in four. So 
what I would say is, well, what are the, what's the etiology of that? What's the root of that? And what you'll see is that, man, we are bombarded with crappy, sugary, fun foods that light up our reward systems. They are hijacking our brains. They are, I mean, that is tasty, tasty stuff. It's tasty. And then you have to be looking at, well, let's look at people where they come from, how their parents learned to eat. And where did you teach them? Where did kids learn to eat? Well, they learned to eat at home or no one teaches them and they solve the problem themselves. And if I turn my 12 year old loose in the store, I know what I'm going to come home with, right? I'm going to home with all the, right. fun. you know, it's not, it's not steak and vegetables, you know? Right. So all of a sudden, you know, what I see is you add in this, this advent of maybe we aren't loading or having tissue exposure enough. And so suddenly you're like, well, I care about kids' ACL injury rates. I'm like, good, up 400% over the last 10 years. And women are tearing their ACLs at six to eight times the rate of men. Or, or you care about, you know, death or you care about being overweight. Or I'm like, choose something. And what you'll see is we're not doing a great job. And the reason that's important is in strength and conditioning and human performance and we'll just call that industrial fitness and when i mean industrial fitness i'm saying industrial fitness is designed to make money so yeah. peloton's designed to make money side effect is people find community get healthier you know soul cycles designed to make money side effect is people get you know they may get healthier and find community right but this industrial fitness idea hasn't served us very well so if if the highest calling of science is to serve the humanities well, let's pretend like strength and conditioning is a science and let's look and say, have we learned how to better humanity through the strength and conditioning fitness model? I'd say, no, we're, we're failing the people that we're learning and the reason or the people that we should be guiding. And the reason strength and conditioning and fitness is so important is that we basically are able to stress test the physiology. We understand, and I, I would say, come at me right now challenge me on this, but I almost think that all the revolutions in what you're seeing in current diet trends of less, less carbohydrate came out of fitness and strength and conditioning and health, right? Not, not like the med side. So look at how people are loading, look at what exercise they're doing. And you're seeing that a lot of the changes and the promises of changing society and behavior really have been rooted in <clears throat> the performance model. So we look at the performance model as like formula one concept and that we have to take those breaks those disc breaks in formula one and apply it to the f-150s of the world which is the rest of us you know one of my heroes is a coach named franz bosch was kind of my current like favorite strength coach and he says there's more variation in waltzing than there is in sprinting and what i take that to understand is when we actually add intensity load volume speed strain stress right? Cardiovascular demand, we can quickly understand what best practice is. And the problem with our current selves is that our genetics, our bodies are incredibly tolerant of abuse. We are designed to be ridden hard and put away wet. And we do that to ourselves through lack of sleep, through lack of community, through lack of movement. And I'm talking about walking. I'm not talking about like <laughs> exercising, right? Through anything that you deem important. Look at the food qualities that, you know, the things we're doing, like a two liter bottle of soda. Like you just, it's mind blowing. The conversations that my wife and I have at our middle school were like, no, a bean burrito is not a good source of protein. You know, <laughs> that this Izzy soda has as much, has as many grams of sugar as a, as a seven up even though it's right. natural, right? So what we're seeing is, 
I think a real fundamental mismatch, but one that goes on a mismatch between environment and organism, like so many people talked about, but one that goes on for decades. And so we end up with the kind of commonality solutions uh, or the results of that. We think that that is an error in the system, but it's actually a normal expression of the system. And so we end up in this deep into complexity theory, which means, you know, where are we going to be able to begin shifting or changing the direction of the, the tanker on the horizon? If we're going to nudge that tanker, is that, is it, do we wait until people are 400 pounds and then have that conversation? Do we wait till to their, you know, we, you know, at Kaiser, you know, the, the medical system, if you come in with high blood pressure, they put you on a statin. Right. That has nothing to do with your high blood pressure, but they know that if you have high blood pressure, you're also going to have high cholesterol. So it's easier for them and vice versa. So it's easier for them just to get you on a statin and a, and high blood pressure. And what people think is, well, that's ridiculous. And I'm like, well, they have lots of data that says you're not going to change your behavior. And this is the way to save your life. Because ultimately what we're talking about is behavior change. Right. And what we need to be asking is how do we constrain environments? Like as soon as we make soda illegal on campus, man, the game is going to change. It's like bringing a gun on campus. So that's where we're going to need to get to the bottom of some of these issues a little bit and argue less about kettlebells versus dumbbells and a little bit more of like, why aren't you sleeping? Why are we talking about chronic pain, but you don't walk and you don't sleep. So how do we even know what we're talking about? Yeah. Kelly, is it, is it fair to sort of view this through the lens of an addiction model? Because you're talking about <laughs> you know, these, these addictions to foods, like clearly soda is not what you should be drinking. Clearly bean burritos are not what 11 year olds should be having for lunch. You know, clearly we need more sleep, but my understanding is a lot of that is tied to, you know, we're up late watching TV, which is itself a form of addiction and and all this stuff. So what, just sort of, what do you think about that lens and what does that tell us about how to get where you're describing? I really I appreciate that. And what I would say is maybe I just back up and, you know, addiction maybe is the wrong word. And I, I know where you're coming from. And, and let me, and I'm not trying to be cute here, but I'm saying is that um, I think addiction is a problem when it begins to obsessively ruin your relationships in your life. Right. And yes, we can make the case that your lack of sleep and your insulin sensitivity is going to shorten your life. So, you know, maybe it falls into that category, but the root of addiction is self-soothing and appreciating sort of the, some of the, the mechanisms by which the brain pays attention to things, the reward centers, those things. So if someone exercises instead of drinks, is that an addiction? Well, they've, they found a way of self-soothing. And I think what you're seeing is, man, we have gotten really hyper clever about hitting all of the reward centers or missing misappropriating the reward centers of the brain serotonin when your phone goes off that sugar hit that caffeine low the you know i mean just check the box and suddenly you do view addiction which is a really i think more benevolent and humane and appropriate way to look at people who whose brain chemistry gets hijacked by opiates is man you are wired to be hijacked by opiates you know some of this was the system's fault. Some of this was not recognizing that like that stuff is poison and it will hijack your brain. And clearly we are seeing that happen from porn addiction and porn use, right? I mean, there's billions of hours. I'm not saying porn's good or bad. I'm just saying that, man, you know, it's, it's, I'm not, sh- I'm, not sh- I'm not sure you are, are wired to be seeing that all the time. And, you know, I think what really is interesting is we, that model doesn't get us to what's best practice. Right. A single bean burrito is not the limiting factor. 
you know, drinking a soda, you know, an eight ounce Coca-Cola cane sugar soda was what it was, you know, once a month because it was a special treat. That was right. not the, that was not the thing. How bad is sitting for humans in a chair? It's such a great question because, you know, is drinking a bottle of wine bad for humans? Right. The, exactly. Sometimes a little bit for a while, not, not, not right away. You know, and I guess, you know, what we should be doing is looking at what are the best behaviors or best environments for a human being to thrive in. And right. what you see is it's not about sitting versus standing. It's about moving versus not moving. And the research is irrefutable that you need to move more and be less sedentary. So Harvard defines a sedentary lifestyle as sitting more than six hours a day in aggregate. So total six gotcha. hours a day. And that sedentary list has a whole host of really interesting physiologic aspects. You don't burn fat very well. You become insulin sensitive. Your, the fluid in your legs backs up. Like, I mean, just check the things that you know, seem like they're important. And suddenly you're like, oh, it's about moving more. And more importantly for us, we can help people to see that like, you know, the goal during the day is to get honestly 10 to 15,000 steps. Sure. If you're older, gotcha. elderly, it might be 8,000 steps a day, but really it's not about steps. It's about how much movement you can get in, which is what we call non-exercise activity. And gotcha. if you, if you sit at the, the kind of sitting you're doing is different. You know, if you, one of the things that I think is worth talking about is if you, perch against the bar stool like you're sitting at a bar like at a, at a coffee shop like a high counter right. bar you're having to balance with your trunk and you have weight bearing through the legs and guess what your one and a half metabolic equivalents are higher in terms of your calorie burning so it turns out one and a half mets metabolic equivalents that's that old thing on the stairmaster would tell you where the cutoff for sedentary behavior is and so what we're trying to do is get enough musculature to kick on that your brain is like, oh, we're being active here. We better pay attention. And, and it turns great. out when you sit in a chair, you're below one and a half metabolic equivalents. If you sit on a wobbly chair or the edge of your chair or perch, you go above one and a half metabolic equivalents. So what that does for us is it, it gets rid of the stigma of sitting bad, we'll die. Right. Although right. we think you not moving and all the hosted behaviors like, you know, cause it's easy to be like, well, what about this person? She smoked cigarettes and died at 98. And I'm like, yeah. And she had COPD and couldn't take a breath and wasn't aerobic athlete. Right. Yes. You can, you can always put the outliers, but is that best for the function of the human? And now we can start to be a little bit more nuanced. Well, you know, can you take a full breath in that position? Well, it turns out now you're chest breathing and practicing chest breathing all the time. And practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent so look at your resting default positions and again if you're just going to the grocery store it probably matters less ultimately right. but if you want to put your arms over your head or extend your hip guarantee you're going to have problems with that stuff so what we end up saying then is you know what should we be doing and what you'll see is maybe i shouldn't be sitting on my hamstrings and instead of the, the weight bearing surfaces of my, my pelvis. And what's interesting is when you sit on the ground, you have all of these structural systems that support the spine built in because we, over two and a half million years, people sat on the ground, slept on the ground, toilet on the ground, ate by the ground, hung out on the ground, played on the ground. It's really only recently that we got up off the ground. So what's the Turkish getup? Well, it's doing fake work 
that you needed to do to replicate your old life. Like that's, that's what the Turkish getup is, right? To exercise, we do fake exercises to um, support muscles we don't actually use in our real life. That, that's, that's the definition of current exercise you know, theory. And so one of the things that we, we suddenly see is if you look at how the spine works, one of the things that you have to appreciate is that the spine derives a lot of stability off of the pelvis through rotation of the femur or anti-rotation of the femur. So you have 10 muscles that flex the hip, bring the knee to the chest, but you have 13 muscles that create an external rotation force in the femur. It's almost like with your feet straight, you have all of these structures and all these fascial systems that help wind your femur into your pelvis so it can become more stable. All of which go away when you sit down in a chair and uh, use the chair for support. And what you'll suddenly see is, well, if you're not wobbling, you're gonna slouch, you're gonna extend, you're gonna end up in a position, which again, may or may not ever cost you in terms of long-term disability, but the research is pretty clear that it may be something else, right? It may be, you know, leading to a whole host of other issues. That makes a lot of sense. So Kelly, I I had another question. It's quite similar to the one we were just just talking about. Running shoes. So hey, Paul hang on I, a second. Let's back up for a second. Because yeah, go get what, some I, sitting. what I really want to say is an easy way of thinking about how much sitting is too much, right? right. Is, well, what are your vi- movement vital signs? How would you know if your body, you're losing the ability to move freely, right? Every physical therapist, every surgeon on the planet agrees we all have these normative ranges. So if you don't hit that normative range, I have to ask you, what the hell's wrong with you? Why, why can't you put your arms over your head? Why, why, did, why is your hip stuck at 90 degrees? Why are you missing all your rotation? How come you have no hip extension? And people are like, sitting's fine. I'm like, knock yourself out. You just are a demi-human right now, half human, because you can't even do what a human's supposed to do. So there's something going on in your habitus and behavior that we should take a look at, right? Which will lead you to your next question. Makes a lot of sense. So uh, beginning of the pandemic, you know, Paul and I, we do a lot of CrossFit workouts uh, together, but you know, we had, everything had to stop. And suddenly Paul, who is uh, also former 5k champion for the army lightly, I sh- should we say, there's a great story there. It's a big story, but yeah. it's it a great story. So, you know, he's a great runner. I'm not at all, you know, way into like Olympic weightlifting, but you know, we couldn't go to the gym anymore. So we'd meet out in the park and go run. And my knees were just getting destroyed. Like and no, my, my no. legs is terrible. I, I know. And I, I had all these, these uh, old tennis shoes I was wearing. And then I read your book ready to run. And I actually switched to a minimal, minimal minimalist pair of shoes. I'm able to put on a ton of miles. You know, I'm a heavy guy. I'm, probably your size, Kelly. And, you know, it was just like, it was just tearing me up, but it, everything um, was fixed when I switched to minimalist shoes. Could you talk about that a little bit? Um, and, you know, kind of the moral hazard of heel striking when you've got an ultra cushion running shoe. And do you still find that kind of critique valid, you know, so many years later? Well, I think it's really interesting is let's just take your shoes off your feet for a second. Like no shoes. Let's not have a conversation with shoes better. Let's watch you run with no shoes on. Right. right. And, and watch what happens to your technique. You run like a kindergartner. You run like Usain Bolt. You immediately stop striking, slamming your heel into the ground because you get this feedback that you cannot do that. And your body immediately adjusts and says, no way. Right. 
it's like if you just had mittens on and you just constantly reached into the oven and you're like, man, I can just reach into the oven with these mittens. It's totally no problem. And then one day you reach into the oven without your mittens on and burn the crap out of your hands. And what you're seeing is the shoe we should be in is the shoe that disrupts our mechanics, our innate mechanics the least, that allows for the best function of the foot. But what you're also up against here is the fact that we have sold running as an unskilled exercise that anyone can do to get fit. It's democratized. Go run. Go, yeah, go pew. And what ends up happening is we don't appreciate on-ramping or boarding. Like, you don't, the first day you guys were running, you're like, let's go run. We're like, woohoo, 5K or 10K, right? What you did, I was like, first day of Olympic lifting, put 315 on there. Like, it's going to be fine. <laughs> Right. No one okay. thinks in those things as moral equivalents, but they are exactly equivalents. Right. No, no, no. Weightlifting, bench press takes technique, but running doesn't matter. I'm like, oh, it doesn't really like it, 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 it disobeys the laws of physics and the laws of all other training. So one is that we're finding that the more we don't spend time on the ground walking and extending the hip, the more our mechanics of running start to reflect that inability to extend the hip. That means you've got to put that foot out somewhere to get going. So you end up making your stride instead of longer out the back, it's longer out the front. And what ends up happening then is you end up with a a mechanic that is made possible by your weightlifting belt or by your shoe orthotic, right? It's It's an artificial construct. And, you know, it's interesting that if you just pan back for a second and say, well, Let's look at the brain and the homunculus on the brain, how how much brain area in the motor cortex is given to different sensory motor areas. And the mouth is huge. The hands are huge. And get out, guess what else is huge? The feet. So really? suddenly you put these shoe coffins, right? These $300 cute with jeans shoe coffins on that insulate you from all perception and reality. And you can get away with a lot of murder. And really it hides the fact that when you went to a minimalist shoe or we'll say a lighter, thinner shoe, you could, you had to make corrections because you had feedback about how hard you were hitting the ground. You know, the research is clear that the thicker your shoe and the more expensive the shoe, the more injury, the more severe injury will be. And it's clear that the thicker your shoe and the more expensive your shoe, the harder you strike the ground. So, you know, if you're slamming the ground, trying to create that viscoelastic stiffness in the tissue, suddenly you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, you're exposing yourself to a lot of additional load. What's interesting also is that because of the changes in our habitus, we suddenly are running much slower cadences. So if you look at children, no children runs under 90 cadence. They don't run slower than 90. It's closer to 94, 96. And by the way, that's how fast Kipchoge's cadence was when he was breaking two hours. He was at 96. And all the marathoners are 94 and 96. So you can't tell me it's not the best way. But what you'll see is that one of some of our running friends have have begun to say, hey, look, if you're running and your foot contact, single foot contact is under 90, let's actually not call that running anymore. Let's call that plodding because your feet are on the ground for too long. And what you're using is your muscular joint system, not your fascia spring system. The Russians call it springiness. That's really the goal. And as soon as you're above 90, you can actually tap into that springy elastic recoil. If you read Daniel Lieberman's book, The Story of the Human Body, he's a Harvard researcher around sort of anthropology, you'll see that that Achilles can store 80% and return 80% of the energy 
but not if your heel's on the ground because it's not a spring if your heel's on the ground. So right. you're just throwing 80% of the energy efficiency and energy transfer of your body. It means That means you have to make some really weird deals with the devil and get all of that rebound stiffness out of your quadriceps, not your posterior chain, but your anterior chain. So suddenly, again, once again, there's plenty of times where people are like, I have this terrible knee pain. I'm like, take off your shoes and run. And they're like, well, my knees don't hurt. I'm like, it's not weird. Let's videotape you with shoes and let's videotape without shoes. And imagine you put on a different color shirt and you throw the ball differently. I mean, that's what we're saying, right? Like your Weird. technique remains steady. And if you run slowly, it should look like sprinting. And what you see exactly, even in this sort of pattern interference is that if I heel strike, but I sprint on my toes, you're saying you write slowly with your left hand and write fast with your right hand. No one changes their technique when it gets fast. Like that's, that's how we challenge technique. And what we haven't done is given anyone those feelings and said what we sold them is ridiculous shoes. That makes a lot which of look, sense. Which look great with jeans. They look great with jeans. Really good. And you have the right. And look, you know, my favorite current shoe right now is I wear, I I'm, I'm, don't have a shoe company I work with, but uh, I wear skate shoes. The New Balance numerics are flat. And it's interesting that indoor soccer shoes, flat skate shoes flat like like football shoes flat like why are why are cleats flat i don't understand right <laughs> and then like indoor soccer i don't know if you noticed there's a lot of cutting in indoor soccer it's right. weird why are track athletes running in flat spikes like i don't you in fact they have a negative can't like you're like what's going on here and then the nike metcon again shout out to my to my, my kids there if you take the insole out of the nike metcon there's it's a half peach of half inch piece of foam it's bananas oh wow as soon as you take that half inch like one pound piece of foam out of each shoe that shoe is a minimalist paper thin shoe that looks good with jeans and then you can start adding in enough flat cushioning to help you not bruise your feet right that that's the, how much cushioning do i need i need enough stiffness and cushioning that i don't hurt myself when i'm running on on hard surfaces that makes a ton of sense. And I, I know I switched to a much more minimalist flat shoe to do just Metcons and box jumps. And that really helped as well. I just, just that feedback, I'm like, wow, I'm smacking my, yeah, my yeah. entire low body in the ground repeatedly. Like no wonder you know, that's a oh, lot of force. Curious, you know, and I, you know, one of the things that, you know, as we get older, we start to become more reasonable. I think I'm more reasonable. And now I'm like, look, I think it probably matters a little bit less what your shoe is. I mean, you don't need a centimeter of cushion, but three to five millimeters is not going to kill you if Got it. you're flat all the time. So you, so have you ever heard this maxim live like train high, live low, right? Mm. That's really the idea of like, if you live high, you don't have all the adapta adaptations and oxygen, but you want to train high. So what I like to say is live flat, train high. So if you need Olympic lifting shoes or some shoe, the shoe can help you solve a technical problem, but running shoes are not everyday shoes. They're running shoes. Like that's gotcha. a very big difference. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think this is a great segue. I know Paul, you want to talk about kind of pain and also some aging issues. I think that would be. Oh boy. How many hours do we have? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, Kelly, uh, you and I are actually about the same age. And, you know, one of the things I've 20, noticed... 23. Tw well, I'm 24, so a little oh, bit older, right, right. maybe. More mature. Um, uh, aging well, I hope. But, um, no, I wanted to sort of ask, you know, as I've gotten older, um, I've noticed that, you know, my top-end strength isn't really going down. In fact, I can still make really good gains. But what's really going on is with my recovery times and 
the amount of strain that I can actually feel on my joints and body as I'm exercising, particularly in CrossFit workouts. So, you know, for the older athlete or just in general, I guess two related questions. Um, is there sort of a baseline level of discomfort that's that's okay? And relatedly, what what are the sort of bodily cues that you're telling people to look for to indicate, hey, this this is an incipient injury, not yeah. You know, this is something you need to pay attention to as opposed to just a normal ache and pain of growing older that will work itself out if you keep exercising. The first thing I would say, and it's such a relevant question, I'm 40, I'll be 48 this year. Um, I would probably say I'm a better, fitter, stronger athlete, more technical athlete, and better prepared athlete than I've ever been in my life. I would mop the floor with my 23 year old self comma, I'd love to be able to treat that bot my body like I did when I was 23, which didn't seem to matter what I did. Um, what I'll say is, first of all, there's some assumptions in there that we should get to the bottom of. One is, do I have to hurt to be an athlete who's not 23 anymore? And the answer is no, you don't. But what you've seen is, we know testosterone is a little lower, growth hormones a little lower, less protein signaling, you need to up your collagen, right? You need to warm up a little bit more. You may not be able to handle the volume. Let's look at your total strain and the sleep quality and hydration. Because what I'll say is I, I don't think your range of motion needs to go away. I think you can be really strong. In fact, at no point does the body stop healing. But what ends up happening is the, the let's just say uh, metaphorically, the fire isn't it, the forge isn't as hot, right? So we, we have to be thinking that the things that didn't matter as much, the best practices that we ascribe towards to elite performance, those things become more germane. So for example, uh, this is from my friend, E.C. Sinkowski, who has the 800 gram challenge, but she's like, hey, look, as you get older, there are a lot of things that you can get away with, but your diet is one of the things you cannot get away with. You have less tolerance. So your diet has to become better and better and better as you get older. You just can't eat like my you know, 16 year old daughter and her boyfriend who just like smash whatever they want and still dust me on the bike. And it's sort of annoying. So the same thing is true then towards what we know is best practice. Tell me about your sleep. Tell me about your eating. Tell me about how you're self-soothing. Are you drinking a ton of wine? Are you, you know what I mean? So all of a sudden what we know is like, well, do the best athletes in the world warm up before they exercise? 100%. That's how they do that. Well, I'm like, well, did you warm up? Well, yeah, I did a couple of double unders and burpee and you know, touch my toes and let's, let's get into it. I don't have time. I've got a busy job. So and I'm like, well, tell me about your non-exercise activity during the day. And you're like, oh, I didn't. I smashed myself during this Peloton thruster nightmare I created for myself in COVID. And then I sat down at my desk all day long. I'm like, okay. So what we end up seeing is we confuse adaptation errors and sort of the mistakes of what elite practice looks like. And the fact that we just don't have the tolerance in our physiology anymore for your silly bullshit. That's really what it comes down to. So that's first and foremost, because when we start to take care of those things, when we start to get a blood panel, when we cut out some of the carbohydrate, when we are really managing our sleep, like my wife and I, we get eight hours. That means we're in bed over eight hours. We're in bed more really like eight and a half to 8.45. We cannot get less sleep than that and expect to train or perform or have the wattage or the poundage. And one of the things that I think is really important is that 
is this fundamental and shifting conversation about pain, what that means. And what I want people to appreciate is pain does not mean tissue damage. Pain means a request for a behavior change. And what I want you to do is begin to think about and conceptualize pain as just information, the same, same level, same rigor as incomplete range of motion, same level and rigor as couldn't generate wattage today or couldn't hit the weights I was trying to hit. Like if you suck today under the barbell, I'm like, what's going on? You're like, well, I got into a fight with my wife and I didn't eat very well. And I went and got drunk with the boys and I watched Netflix all night long because I was so sad. I'm like, well, that's, I can kind of couple those behaviors. And you're like, why is your knee hurt? You're like, I don't know. I, I've torn my meniscus. <laughs> I've, torn, I've herniated my, <laughs> my knee. And you just catastrophize. And what we want people to appreciate is that we define injury as can no longer occupy my role on the team in my job or my role in the family. That's really important. Or I can't recreate or learn. So in one of those things, plus clear mechanisms of injury, you sprained your ankle when you came off the pull-up bar or night sweats, dizziness, fever, vomiting, like you've got some kind of pathology going on, right? So when we take pathology and catastrophe away and we just have pain, pain is just a request for change. I just want us to be familiar that like pain is your companion, pain's your friend in so much that it can guide you to understanding a different technique, a different physiology, or it's asking for, you know, like, look, if you are in love and eating great and sleeping, I guarantee you I can put a nail through your thigh and you won't feel it, right? But like your dog dies, true story, your old ankle injury will come back to haunt you because your, your sensitivity threshold is down. So one of the things that we always are talking about is, well, what are the best practices around making sure that the brain doesn't interpret what's happening in the body as a pain signal? Because right, that's one of the, one of the choices that your brain has. And your brain has got, given you some, some messages, loss of force production, loss of range of motion, stiffness. And your brain's like, bro, bro, bro. All right, let, I'm going to flick your ear. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I went for a run and my knee hurts. Well, let's, let's get into that a little bit more. Let's look at your training volume. Let's look at your hydration. Let's look at your nutrition. Let's look at your adaptation recovery kind of things. And suddenly what we see is, oh, you know, this is pretty sustainable. And, you know, what I'll say is you have to pay attention to your tissue quality a little bit more as you get older. Like that is, that is not for granted anymore. You cannot be a stiff, hypohydrated, hyperinflamed person and expect to yank on that quad or that tendon or that ligament the same way you did when you got away with it. And again, this is this normal accident theory idea of when we get into complex systems, sometimes the outcome looks like catastrophe, but it was just a normal expression of the system. Your shoulder's been jamming forward on that bench since Vietnam. And then suddenly you couldn't buffer anymore. The tissues just fell below some kind of thresh threshold and you had this catastrophic tear. And then as we say, as we get into that, well, could we have prevented that in any way? Like what were the mechanisms or things or behaviors? Well, it turns out those are the same behaviors we would have had a conversation about if we were trying to go fast or win world championships. It's all there. It's the same stinking thing. You know, my, my 16 year old daughter said something really funny in the car or in the, and was we're hanging out the other night. She's like, you know, dad, when, when, cause our dog is a little chunky right now, you know, he's got a little chunky and uh, it's COVID weight. He's eating our cat food. And um, <laughs> we have, we, this is, this, this says it all. We have a, a cat that was became diabetic. Right. And, you know, all of a sudden he's obsessively drinking. He's, he's a used cat. He's a vintage cat. And uh, 
we, we have this cat all of a sudden he's obsessively drinking from the fountain and freakily like, I need water now. And we're, I was like, is my cat diabetic? So we tested him and it turned out we had a diabetic cat. So you know what cats eat? Meat. Just meat. Just meat. Just meat. Obligate carnivores. Obligate carnivore is the right. Guess what cat food is? Not meat. Not meat. <laughs> it is. So I basically gave my cat diabetes, feeding him the most bespoke, yuppie cat food. You know what my cat needed? Meat. Just meat. Just Please meat. God, give me meat. So I gave my cat meat again. And guess what? His diabetes cured himself, right? And I was like, man, how am I like an expert in nutrition and performance? And I gave my cat diabetes because I'm an idiot. And that is really this case of what we're talking about here. So my, my daughter's like, hey, when our dog gets fat, you know, he needs to eat less and walk more. And I was like, that's really good advice. She's like, you know, when, when people get fat, they need fat burners and, and juice cleanses. And, and like, and I was like, good point, George. <laughs> like <laughs> humans are really different. Like we don't need to eat less and walk more. We need... <laughs> We need fat burning pills and fen fen. And, right. you know, and that's, you know, what's really interesting there is that with the cat and the dog, their behaviors are constrained. They don't have a choice. They eat what you feed them. Right. And the rest of us have to make a thousand choices and we will default to the good feelings. You know, I had just had knee surgery, as you guys talked about. I had my knee resurfaced four months ago after a really bad ski accident seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, I crashed really bad going fast on skis and couldn't buffer it anymore. And, you know, this, this idea of sort of, I don't know where I'm going with this. We'll, we'll come back to it. Anyway, you know, the idea here is um, we absolutely have all the tools. We just have to constrain the environment to make better decisions. That is, I think, is part of the way out of it. So let me tell you how this translates. If I don't want to wake up eating cookies, I don't have cookies in the house. Otherwise, my, the house. my brain will wake up at two in the morning and be like, bro, there's cookies in the house. <laughs> you, heard a, you heard a noise. Why don't you go get a cookie? I swear that's what my brain does. <laughs> so the only way I prevent it is I don't have them in the house. That makes it makes a lot of sense. You also made one point which I was very valuable to me. So I wanted you to uh, just make. I want to make sure the audience got this. Um, there's a difference, and I, you know, I couldn't sleep for the longest time. You know, I've got a stressful job, a lot going on, and I would come in and I would smash it really hard in the gym, oh, and then yeah. I wouldn't still be able to sleep. And I'm like, what is going on? Like I'm murdering myself in the gym, you know. Uh, and, and then I, I listened to you maybe on a podcast, maybe it was on the Ready State. I can't remember. And you said something, it was like, there's a difference between the total movement you do in a day and smashing really hard in the gym. And you need both to be a fully functional human. Well, I think what, you know, what we know is non-exercise activity is an optional. And what I mean is you need to move around enough to decongest your tissues. So let's look at your lymphatic system for a second. It's the sewage system of the body. A normal adult makes about three liters of lymphatic fluids, right? So if you ever had a blister, that's a that's lymph. So your lymphatic system is built into your movement system. It's all in your muscles and it's a passive one-way system. So when your muscles contract, you drive your lymph out, right? So what we see suddenly is, well, if I want to just decongest and move the natural byproducts of cellular respiration, which can't always go out through the blood, they go out through the lymph, the bigger proteins and those things. I actually have to squeeze my calves a little bit. Otherwise, I'm going to end up with cankles. And right. right. And and it's moving around. And so suddenly you're like, oh, okay, it's not about I need to get exercise. 
It's about that I need to decongest. So you're like, okay, well, when you put an orca in captivity, one of the things we know happens is it ends up with folded fin syndrome, right? And what you can simply, that's right. It's a nice way of saying, you know, instead of floppy fin syndrome, it's, it's not so nice. <laughs> so guys, and the idea here is I'm like, well, what have you done to the orca? Well, fundamentally you change its behavior. It spends a lot more time at the surface. So it's exposed to a lot more gravity sort of moment arm on that fin. But second, that fin isn't being loaded. It's not being, that orca isn't hunting, it's not fighting, it's not swimming, it's not doing its thing. So the collagen becomes weak. So now you've got a unused system, an orca and an apex predator, and you change its environment. Any, does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a human being to you? And so what's really interesting is that I'm like, you're just not being, you're not your orca self, you're your folded finned orca self in, in captivity. And this is called mechanotransduction, that if you want to have a cell in the body express itself, you need mechanical input. So if you want your ligaments to be ligaments, you better load your ligaments. If you better, if you want your fascia to be strong, you better load the fascia, you better load the musculature. And so suddenly what you're seeing is, man, am I exposing the tissues of my body to concentric loads, eccentric loads, and isometric loads? Because if your tendon isn't exposed to those things, it's not gonna be great. It's not gonna be a full tendon. It's gonna be a demi-tendon, which is sort of sucky when you really wanna go fast when all, all of a sudden, you know? So all of a sudden we're like, well, you got to just get some background loading in. Well, that walking is pretty damn good for that, right? Then you start asking yourself, well, you know, Kirk Parsley, uh, Doc Parsley describes it as that one of the mechanisms for sleep is this adenosine that comes off the ATP is that it accumulates and then you start to get, become sleep triggered, become it. And it's one of the reasons men fall asleep a little bit more than women is they have more muscle mass typically. It's one of the reasons. My wife would tell you it's because she's running our family and our business and I'm just... <laughs> a buffoon, which is also valid. It's a valid point. And, um, but one of the things we see is that you actually have to accumulate enough non-exercise activity to trigger fatigue. And, and in an hour of intense exercise, it's not sufficient to accumulate enough fatigue load. So what we're seeing is suddenly this mismatch again between environment and organism and the organism, the human being is supposed to move more. And fortunately for us, we all have a cell phone. And your cell phone actually has an activity tracker built into it. It'll count your steps for you. So if you just keep your cell phone in your pocket, which is where it is all the time anyway, you don't even need an activity tracker. You already have one. And take a look and ask your kids. And what you're going to see is you're like, holy shit, I walked 2,000 steps today. And I'm like, huh, oh, no. that's, that's weird. And you've been doing that for the last month. You know, so one of the things that we're trying to do when we're trying to unravel what seemingly complex problems like sleep, because that's a real big one for us. If you have chronic pain or persistent pain or new onset pain or injury or surgery, you get two things from me. You're going to get, I'm going to ask you about your sleep and eight hours is the minimum and seven hours is survival. So you got seven hours, correct. You're surviving. If you want to grow or be faster or change your body composition or heal, you've got to get eight hours. You may need to be in bed for eight, for eight and a half to eight forty-five or seven and a half to seven forty-five to get the actual time because an upwards of an hour of the sleep disturbance is normal. And I'll also ask you to walk more. Those two things, because if, I, if I'm trying to tug at this Gordian knot, I can't really see what's what. And so if you start walking more and then did some down regulation before you fall asleep, that'd be great, right? Some, some soft tissue rolling. But if you walk more, you're going to sleep. And then what will end up happening is that if you get enough sleep, you don't wake up groggy and start slamming the caffeine and then have caffeine at four trying to stay awake and then have to have a drink at eight, which disrupts your sleep because you're trying to hit the brakes. And suddenly we have this 
the stimulant depressant cycling going on, on top of no movement, on top of Netflix. And I'm like, so much noise in the data. I can't even tell what's what anymore. And that's what's really complicated. So then people are like, give me that CBD gummy. Give me this sleep (laughs) pill. That's what I need. So, you know, that's where I want us to, to get to is say, hey, let's just put the first building blocks first. And that is the base of a physical practice. Then we can start talking about what's next. That makes that makes a ton of sense. So I, I had one more question. This is kind of a two-part question. Might ask Paul if he has one more, and then we want to let you get to dinner, Kelly. Um, so for an athlete that has like an hour of day, hour a day, what's your movement prescription? And what's the if you don't do anything else, the mobility movements you want people to kind of think about? Mm. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, Juliet and I are working on a book right now called Built to Move, which is really saying, hey, what are the essential aspects of being a human? that create a, a physical practice so that we can li- stop having a conversation about which secret squirrel exercise program leads the best results, right? Like if you want to change your body composition, that's about food, right? If you want to change your health, you got to move a little bit more. If you want to exercise and have more muscles because it makes it easier to burn more calories, fantastic. Like we're into that, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, what I, what, what I would say is let's, instead of saying, what are the things we have to do? Let's say, what are the opportunities or the windows where you can actually do something? You know, one of the triggers for my CEO wife, who's three-time world champion, superstar attorney, CEO of our businesses, mother of two, is listening to tech bros talk about their daily routine and their gratitude journals and how they fast in the morning, drink this detox tea, <laughs> meditate. She's like, the who's, getting the kids, who's getting the kids ready? Like, she's like, someone's got to, exactly. you know, so she freaks out. And so what we see is First thing in the morning, even before your kids are up, there's some agency there. So that's a place where you could chug some water. That's a place where you could drop in 10 minutes of like a Wim Hof or XPT style breathing. Um, maybe you could do the 10 minute hip spin up that we have on our blog. On the Ready State blog, we have like my morning routine, which is I do a little bit of breathing and I do a little bit of hip openers. Then I try to eat protein. So I'm not a big fan of intermittent fasting. And the reason I don't like to intermittent fast is that if I miss an opportunity to eat in the morning, I can't guarantee you that I will have eaten enough through the day. So for me, it's about agency. Like when my day gets going, I'm like, shoot, do I have anything to eat for lunch? But I know I can leave the house having eaten a fruit or a vegetable and a protein. So for me, I'm like, dude, this is one of the few windows where I have agency because once the door, day starts going, I might, I might be fasting during the day. I might you know, maybe, maybe there's food, maybe I have food prep, maybe I have leftovers, but what I can assure myself is later on, if I have not, if I've missed breakfast, which is totally fine to fast, by the way, it just may not be the, the elite performance we're after. Um, but, you know, the idea here is, you know, where can I put the best practices in? And then once the day goes, my only goal during the day is to get as much movement as I can. Then in the evening, when I start to have some agency again, I can do some soft tissue work, make 10 minutes before I go to bed. I can roll around on a roller or tack what's stiff or sit on the ground while I'm watching TV and roll out my calves. And what suddenly you realize is, man, at those bookends, those are really important. And so if you walked a ton, drank some water during the day, ate some fruits and vegetables and some great proteins maxed out on those things, you did a little bit of soft tissue work, you had a little breathing 12 hours ago, dude, you killed it. That is a person who's going to be 110 <laughs> years old. And that we didn't even talk about how much you deadlifted or what did you do an upper body, lower body split or, <laughs> you know, short, medium, hard. Like that just ends up being an extra conversation. And that's what I want people to appreciate is that we're not trying to 
add more to your life. We're trying to take things out of your life. And that's really the way to look at it. And here's, here's what I would say. How's it working? Are we fatter? Are we more stoked? <laughs> exactly. We have more anxiety. How suicide rate in kids? I'm serious. Choose something that's you bad. give a shit about. And then just ask the question, how's it going? And what you see is, okay, maybe it's not going great. Maybe right. five hour energy drink and this protein shake isn't getting me where I need. And, and I think that's where we're going to just have to ask slightly different questions. You know, all our, our kids have to turn their phones into us at 9.30, respectively, and 10 o'clock at night. Nice. That's the difference between 12 and, and, um, and 16. And the phones live in our rooms. You know why? Because I can't leave a heroin needle and cocaine <laughs> on the bedstand next to my kid. <laughs> Why? Because I'm like, can you imagine your 16 year old self and be like, don't Snapchat your sexy girlfriend at one in the morning, dude, I would never have slept ever again. <laughs> yep. And so what we do is we just take that, we take that decision away from our kids and protect their sleep. And subsequently I have daughters who have, you know, nice skin and who don't feel like they get injured very well and they focus better in school. And that's where we have to be thinking about the issues is, Right now, very much in our society, the tail is wagging the dog, not got the it. other way around. Makes a lot of sense. Paul, you got a parting question? Yeah, Kelly, I, I just can't resist asking this while I've while I've got you here. Um, you're kind these of my, an... these are my real calves. They're not implants. <laughs> is that what you're going to ask me? <laughs> that was exactly it. Exactly it. Um, no, you're you're kind of an OG of the the CrossFit community, mm. and you know one of the controversies about CrossFit is whether or not it's a higher injury rate than, than other sports. And as I was thinking about this podcast, I started thinking about, you know, it has all these exercises where you're intentionally putting yourself under a lot of fatigue while you're cycling weights that are intentionally heavy for you, which, which seems like sort of a recipe for, for injury. Um, well, how about it's a recipe for mistakes? Yes, exactly. And then the mistakes I think are, are leading to the injuries. Um, or, or can in a lot of cases. And I, I don't want to get into that controversy, but I wanted to know, you know, what are you telling, you know, the participants in your CrossFit about how to handle that? What, what can we do as CrossFit athletes to address that potential problem? So first and foremost, let's debunk this and say that 80% of runners are injured in a year. So running is a sport. Okay. Um, I mean, if, would you let your children go running if you knew that eight out of 10 of the children were going to be injured in a year? <laughs> so uh, what you see is that actually CrossFit training, which is gymnastics and running and Olympic lifting and powerlifting have the same injury rates as those sports, which is relatively low per thousand hours. So, you know, what you see is this is a formal movement, codified movement practice that asks you to express full physiologic range. How many landmine presses are there in the workouts? None. How many, you know, uh, you know, ring rows are there in workouts? None, that's a scaled movement as you work your way towards full physiologic range. And so what's happening is that initially, again, people are protected because they're beginners, right? They're not very Got fit, it. they're not very strong which is really great because you can get away with a lot. Children can fall a lot early on. They can fall a lot as they're learning to walk. It's not a big deal. We, we want to make mistakes. So what we should be asking for ourselves is when you look at a model like CrossFit is we're asking you to express full and normal, normative physiologic range in the tissues. And what I'm saying is, so you can hear me, can you put your arms over your head without bending your elbows, 
right? Without doing something weird with your neck and your back, right? Just do, and that's the same range of motion every physical therapist says you should have, every chiro thinks you should have, every academy orthopedic surgeon says you should have. So now I'm like, great, you can do that and you can do that slow. Well, can you do it with a dumbbell? Which means that I, I can't create stability off a fixed object like a barbell. I have to create all the stability through the shoulder. Well, can you do it with this kettlebell? Slightly different stimulus. Can you do it with a barbell? Okay, now I've gone from a, you know, a, what I call an open torque system, which is the hand is free to a closed torque system where I get to create torque off a fixed object. Well, I'm like, suddenly I'm like, well, what happens if you flip upside down? Can you stabilize your trunk off the, off this fixed arm? I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Can you, can you express that when you're doing a pull-up? Can you express that when you're pressing? Can you express that when you go from a snatch? So suddenly you're saying, well, are you, do you have control of your arms over your head in downward dog? And what you see is that downward dog, you can do downward dog in the worst position possible and still get away with downward dog. You cannot push a dumbbell over your head in a bad position and expect that dumbbell to arrive over your head. So what I'm really saying is, do you have this competencies in this movement? And then the first thing that we traditionally have challenged this with is load. So how do I know it's, I got better? Well, I got heavier. Well, it turns out for me, the most interesting conversation of all the conversations we're having isn't load or speed. It's can you stabilize while you're breathing hard? Because all sport is ultimately that you're running down the soccer pitch. You need to cut. You are skiing and you're breathing hard. You're playing volleyball and you've cut. So the metabolic conditioning or cardiorespiratory demand is very interesting. And that's why you see in all of my injury training or, or post-surgical training protocols, the first thing I do is challenge your position by making you breathe hard. This is the assault bike. Now show me you can do five strict pushups, right? And what you see is people fall apart under some cardio load. So what we expect to do in our training is we expect to make it hard enough, fast enough, heavy enough, metabolic enough, cardiorespiratory enough, skill enough, where I begin to elicit mistakes, where I begin to make sure that my athletes are making mistakes and self-correcting mistakes. The problem is, and mistake or say compensation, because what's happening is that people will solve the problem to win the game. If I say the goal is to be done as fast as you can, let me see what your pie eating looks like. Does it, do you have a fork and knife or do you shove <laughs> your face in the pie? Right, right. And you come up and you're like, I won, right? I won. So we, we end up getting what we value. And what were the things that we saw was that when you constrain the system to compete, that was what we ended up valuing. And that was the expression of the, of the outcome is that whoever did the most work the fastest and was the fittest, that's what we valued. Meanwhile, those skills don't transfer very well to the real world. And this is really where we get into this interesting conversation about industrial fitness, which is designed to make money, fitnessing, go to fitness. I, ooh, I burned so hard. This Orange Theory said, I'm, you know, I'm like, you want to win Orange Theory? Show up dehydrated, hungover, and underslept. Your heart rate will spike <laughs> while you're walking on the treadmill and you'll win <laughs> the most time in the Orange, right? And, uh, you know, if you're a good athlete and well-rested, you're not sure orange there, you'll lose. And so what we want people to appreciate then is we have all of these ways to solve this, to challenge your ability to move effectively. And what we see is you cannot hide your true self and what your default learning movement habits are. So if you get injured in the gym, let me be super clear, freak things happen. 
but this is the only safe environment in your life. And the reason you got injured in the gym through overtraining or doing, I mean, people fall off the pull-up bar all the time. Things like that happen. But what you're seeing is that people are going so fast and they can't feel when they're making mistakes. They're solving a movement problem. And that movement problem they can get away with because they've always won until they can't get away with it, until the it's, it's dead-ended. So what we do is we chart to transform GPP, general physical preparedness, into what I call sports preparation training. So GPP was originally the iteration of CrossFit or the sort of the etiology of CrossFit. And GPP was, hey, let's expose you to bigger ranges of motion. Let's make you stand up and control your body in space, right? Multiple like, you know, functional movements. Well, well sports preparation suddenly means, hey, your foot position matters. Because I'm not just interested in, did, did you do a bunch of crappy squats so you could get lean? Or you did a bunch of crappy squats so that you could you know, have better heart function. I'm interested that you can learn how to jump and land and absorb force and cut. Because again, you may be setting someone up to use that practice pattern at speed, low intention. And that means you really do own that injury on the soccer pitch for that 12 year old, because you were saying, Hey, I need you to get your feet straight. Instead, you were saying, turn your feet out because that's cool. And you were able to squat. Meanwhile, that kid learns to extend the hip with her foot turned out and cuts and, and tears her ACL. So when we suddenly start caring about positional competency, I'm not saying we don't make mistakes. Right. And we're, no matter what, let me be clear. You come to my gym and we're squatting. You're squatting today. No matter what you might be box squatting six inches, but you're squatting today. Like you may be holding on to TRX straps and squatting, but damn it. You're, you're squatting it. today. You're doing it because those are the fundamentals of how the body expresses itself. What you won't do is squat like thing. You will be squatting, but we'll scale it appropriately. We'll take the torso vertical torso out of it. We'll give you a box. We'll pause. We'll slow down. So, Suddenly, when you view CrossFit through that lens, you're like, oh, I understand what I'm trying to do here. Some of these things I'm adding speed. Some of these things I'm adding uh, low to metabolic. And my job is to be boring. So one of my favorite athletes to watch right now is Kara Saunders, Kara Saunders Webb. And um, I'm always stalking her Instagram page. I'm such a fan of her family. But watch her do wall balls and you will not see a single wobble in her foot. Her foot does the same thing. And if you cover the rest of her body, you can't tell what movement she's doing because her feet are so boring. And so what we're trying to do is take complex movement patterns, simplify them and make them robust under a whole variety of conditions. And what I'll tell you is there's always some load, some volume, some speed, some intensity where I'll get you to make mistakes. That's where I want you to train. But what we valued is whoever goes the fastest wins, whoever eats the most pie wins, whoever drove their car to work fastest wins. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's the greatest way to get to work, but you did get there fastest, but you ran five signs and gotten six accidents and told your car, but you're like, but I won, right? Right, right. And, and so, you know, early on, again, I think one of the things is that we were protected because we were beginners. We weren't very fit. Got it. You know, I, I was already a national champion riding my bike, working with an Olympic lifter the first time I did Fran and I got buried. I got stapled like 12 minutes later. I was like laying on the ground of my club one globo gym. And I was like, I, well, I just did 45 strict pull-ups. I'm like, what the hell, who does that? And this right. is <laughs> like, you know, I thought, I thought this was one of the easiest workouts. There's only two movements in there. Right. Okay. And um, so don't get me wrong. You know, 12 minutes is very different. Remember, there's more variation in, in waltzing than there is in sprinting, right? That's really the goal here is that we want to make sure that 
this high speed, high intensity better look like the best expression of the movement and the most force tolerant positions. So if you're only snatched, like this is the classic example, you can swing a crappy kettlebell over your head if it weighs 35 pounds. You can't swing right. a kettlebell over your head when it weighs 100 pounds, right? Sumo deadlift high pole does not become a pseudo deadlift high pole as soon as it's heavy, it becomes a regular high pole. So what you start to see is there are some constructs that happen under light loads. But, you know, your crappy barbell cycling where you swing the barbell off of your 65 pounds off your hips suddenly doesn't serve you when it's 135 and it certainly doesn't serve you when it's 225. So for us, it's that same conversation we're having about running, right? And instead of saying, well, you ran really fast, but you ran like an idiot, right? We can say, hey, I see that you, you know, we're not, we're not, we're challenging your technique with these things. And it turns out when we do those best practices of teaching the highest expression of the movement, then what we see is that is really safe. It's much safer than we expect. Awesome. And by the way, as a 50 year old, I don't know if you need to do muscle ups. I, I think, <laughs> let me say this. I think pull-ups are a really shitty sport. Like, you know I mean? It's like, like, you know what I mean? I'm just like, okay, you know, I said it. And yet I do lots and lots and lots of pull-ups. Pull-ups are why like my body works. I do so many pull-ups. <laughs> I do so many different kinds of pull-ups. Like I pull up <laughs> on weird things. I do weighted pull-ups. I do chins. I do tempo. I pull up on the pegboard. Like I can't do enough pull-ups in my life yet. I'll tell you, it's not a sport. That's great. That's great. You're well, welcome. Kelly, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, where can people find you? Where should we uh, send folks to? If people are still interested in my monkey brain, <laughs> uh, we are at the ready state. You know, we owned San Francisco CrossFit for 15 years. We got closed down because of uh, rent and I'm really sorry about that. That's yeah, terrible. It's, it's pretty gnarly. Um, but, uh, you know, we are rooted in this community and we're, we are at the ready state. We used to be called Mobility Wad. And I just want to say that we were the first people in the history of the world to use the word mobility. So if you've heard that word now, I'm sorry, it's my fault. And second, we are the first company to be something blank wad. I was like, I'm so clever. I'm the first blank wad. Number one. And now there's 10,000 watts of sobriety <laughs> wad and, and, and like faith wad and divorce wad. There's all these wads out there. And we, we, uh, we became the ready state because part of our mission is to take what we're learning and actually transcribe these lessons in high performance and try to transcribe them to the rest of the people who are just trying to feel better and feel a little more stoked, right? And so we are at the ready state. And if you want to see the ready state Instagram or the YouTube channel are places where I do a lot of lecturing. I put up a lot of eight to 10 minute lectures about how your body works and pain and self-soothing mechanics. And you won't see a lot of me with my shirt off. You won't see a lot of me, <laughs> you know, PRing on my lifts. Sometimes that stuff ends up there, never shirt off. But what you'll see is we really try to teach and use social media as a teaching platform and it's one of the reasons I think we don't have millions and millions of followers. You know, I mean, if I was a cuter woman with a bigger booty in a thong, you know, we would be killing it. But unfortunately, I'm a middle-aged guy, bald guy. So um, if you're interested in knowing how we apply our model to what, you, what things you care about, come over to the Ready State. That's great. Well, thanks, Kelly. I really appreciate it. Thanks, boys. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.
So we just got off the phone with Kelly Starrett of Mobility Watt. <laughs> you're looking at me like you're, you're waiting for me to say, yes, we did. Here you go. <laughs> you want to go that? We absolutely just got off the phone with Kelly yeah, Starrett. Yeah, it's great. Um, so I, I guess what were your big takeaways? Look at that. Um, Make sure it's coming through all right. There we go. Uh, well, I mean, there was a lot there. Right. Um, you know, the things that particularly interested me – you know, from a CrossFit perspective was, you know, I heard him to be saying, hey, you know, CrossFit's moving into a new phase that needs to de-emphasize the sort of winning as defined <laughs> by, um, you know, I did more reps with more weight than you did, and therefore I win and right. refocus back on mechanics and building mechanics slowly. Yeah, there's a, there's a great Glassman line. Uh, it's like anyone, like people will die for points. Which I think is it's great and true and the interesting insight into human nature. But it has gotten a little insane. It's like Goodhart's law. It's like this is what we're measuring on is like scores and how fast you can do things. And right. Well, I mean that's the old Napoleon line, right? Like yeah. men, men will die for a piece of ribbon. I mean, this, this is not <laughs> right. a new idea. It's really Thruster races. Um, you know, but it, but it's tough because I think you know in in some sense the popularity of CrossFit, um, the reason or one of the reasons people right. like it so much yep. is because it provides that little adrenaline rush of competition um, yeah. and that competition takes you out of the immediate physical discomfort of what you're doing and you you know you're sort of looking to validate yourself by gains you're making in your fran time exactly. or your yeah. lifts and you know i think those can be conflicting goals and i i think it's it's sort of self-evidently true that right. Kelly's right. Yes, <laughs> that's a great point. But it's like it's like so difficult to have, like hold these competing like priorities. I think you and I have gotten much better at this, like especially since the pandemic. You know, just like wow, like what are we actually trying to do, and like how do we prevent injury and well, move that better? And for both of us now, a couple years of chronic injury. Like, oh God, by- <laughs> what is wrong with my shoulder? Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, which which I think is related. The the other thing, you know, he talked about was, um, well, he, he talked about a lot of good stuff, but the thing I think related here is, you know, he talked about we, we live in a world where stuff is designed to activate our pleasure centers. Right. And, and intentionally so, right? A, a Dorito, for lack of a better word, is engineered to make you eat it. <laughs> so th- th- this is great. I've got a box of cheeses right over here I brought in. <laughs> like, is that Target? I'm like, you know what? I really need these cheeses. <laughs> and I was eating them in the car. And I'm like, these are not good, but they are really activating some dopamine release in my brain right now. Right. And you can sort of both know that they're not good intellectually a it's piece of your physiology even rejects them and yet you will keep eating them. <laughs> it's, it's it's a really it's really interesting comment right because we've got this the society we live in you know it's like we've got these incredibly vivid video games marijuana you know and i and these ultra palatable foods like all these like pleasure center you know like social media stuff just getting fired on all the time i'm reminded of like john milton uh you know has the devil say this in paradise loss you know he makes a hell of heaven and a heaven of hell and it, it feels like we've we've almost turned inward a little bit and we've got this focus on the self and and um lucretian like pleasure all the time in the garden uh I don't know. It, it's weird. It, it is a real thing, and I think it's probably a symptom of something else that's difficult to get to, that's going on um, within our society. But but it, it's a real thing, and, and the tail's wagging the dog, like Kelly said. Yeah, and extent. you know, I hear. I, I guess I go back to you know, I hear Kelly saying things that 
of course he's right. <laughs> right. Like, 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 duh. <laughs> like, right. Like Jesus. this emperor has no clothes. You you gotta do like oh yeah. yeah oh, this man. is all addictive bad stuff that we need it's to really not do this we're much. Slurping down, yeah. And that's why we're fat and unhappy and can't sleep. Right. Yeah, you know. Exactly. Um and, and it's good to hear, you know, taking nothing away from from his insight, you know, I, I'm hearing him boil it down to look, you Lay off the Cheez-Its. Get enough sleep. Drink some water. Get up and move around. Exactly. You know, you you ask him, well, what what can we do during the day? And he sort of very politely said, you could Come get on, off your ass. fat ass. <laughs> is what you could do. Start fixing shit, man. That's like, God, touche, fine. my friend. Fair touche. enough. Fair enough. You're right. You're right. Yeah. But I guess the simplest messages are the hardest to hear sometimes like that. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it's necessary, right? Because you have to, I think um, – you have to keep reaffirming that alternate voice because we are living in this world yeah. where, you know, I, I don't mean this as a sort of conspiracy theory. I, I mean it as truth. Like the things that are surrounding us are designed to capture our attention and hold it. They're yep. designed to activate these pleasure centers. That's, that's not, it's not a shadowy organization seeking exactly. to control us. It's, it's the chemical composition of a cheese it It's a Netflix show that has been audience tested Yes. to activate your interest. It's, exactly. um, you know, we can talk about the effect of blue light on REM sleeps, but it, it's <laughs> just true that, you know, most of us would love to be Snapchatting at one in the morning. Yeah, You exactly. know, if, if that goes off, we're going to be like, yeah, let's, like, do, let's that. do it. Let's do it. That's great. It's better than sleep in the moment. Um, you know, so how do we how do we combat that? And I think that's, you know, what Kelly's trying to do, you know, from yeah. the writings of his that I've read from the conversations we've had, he's trying to say, we need to combat that first. We need to right. recognize that. And we need to take active steps to take that one step back and try to find alternate ways to activate those pleasure centers. The, yeah. the good endorphin rush of exercise, the, um, you know, sense of belonging and community that I find in CrossFit. Right, I think right, a lot right. of people do. Which is very much missing in broader American society at this point. You know, church membership is down. Like, there's not a lot of places you can go, and especially COVID aside, there's not a lot of places where people go and there's like a real sense of community with people, especially of different ages. You know, like that very rarely happens. There's extreme age segregation, kind of in the society more broadly that I feel in social atomization. Like people are just lonely a lot of the time. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna use the word atomization there because you know that's sort of a a byproduct of the ability to be anywhere. Right. You know, you if if you really want to watch, you know, videos of pigs being dunked in barrels of crude oil <laughs> and then put into catapults, like that's out there. You know, there's there's a, there's it an exists. organization you can find. Like, yes. Um but but that organization's going to be online, right? right? And it's it's going to be remote. It's going to be virtual. Yep. It's going to take you into one community maybe but at the cost of taking you out of your immediate surroundings exactly and i don't think we've really found a way to negotiate that tension in ways right. that give us the benefits of this access to a broader community in ways that you know outweigh or or at least act as um companions to the in-person community i'm i'm sort of hopeful that the pandemic has in ways made people, it's made me realize the value that I had in my life of sort of in-person interaction. Gotcha. You know, I, in some ways I sort of didn't realize how much of my time was spent going out with friends for right. no other purpose than sitting Just with them people. and yeah. conversing. 
right. until I couldn't do that <laughs> yeah, anymore. Like, God. And, you know, we're on Zoom calls. And I'm like, well, this sucks. <laughs> this, is not, <laughs> this is not it. It's decidedly not it. Yeah, that it's such a great point, right? In some ways, it's like there's this inherent trade-off between, like, you know, if you're a gay person in Alabama and like an ultra conservative small town, you know, and this was even more true like 20 years ago. Um, and you had the internet and you could find people that were like you and you could talk to them. And that is like super valuable. Right. So if you're in, in an insular community, you can have like a, a group that's similar to you that you can talk to on the internet. Um, but on the same coin, it's like, well, we've gotten so embedded because there are, we can get our perfect match. Like we can find our perfect match community wise virtually, which probably doesn't exist by you right like you know if you're into the crude pigs <laughs> oil pig you know can catapult conspiracy like there's just not the local chapter hey, that, like that's real um yeah you know i don't think it's helpful to to fail to recognize there there is value in yeah. virtual community there is value in modern society you know there's there's yeah. I would not choose to go back to, <laughs> no you know, for me, a, t a time before anesthetic. That doesn't sound right. like, like a good idea at all. Um, but how are how are we negotiating that? Right. You know, what what are we doing to actively think about capturing the benefits of that while rejecting um, or at least minimizing the drawbacks? And I think Kelly, you know, had some really good points about that they're, they're straightforward but i think they're things that we need to hear yeah, just in general because it's too easy to forget that when when we get so involved in all these other things yeah it all runs together that's great well uh, any other thoughts you had coming off the top no i mean i i enjoyed the hell out of a chance to talk to him it was great it was really cool awesome well thanks paul i appreciate you coming on all right take care bye